Lord, indeed, it's in our weakness that we are here before you this morning. And yet, you are the one that we praise. You are the one that we adore. And in our weakness, through Jesus Christ, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, you give us the ability to do just that. And Lord, you hear our praise. And it is a sweet sound to you. May our hearts and our minds be turned toward our relationship with you as we, as we ponder some of the words that you have written to us so that we may have life and know how to live in this world. We thank you and we praise you. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Please have a seat. So in a thousand and one Arabian nights, Scheherazade tells the story of the rich merchant and the parrot to the king. Uh, I'll tell you the basis for a thousand and one nights at a later time. But this man loved his wife so much that he, he could scarcely leave her out of his sight. And so one day he had some urgent business that carried him away, and he needed to travel, but he wanted to keep an eye on his wife. So he was in the marketplace, and there he talked with a man who sold birds. And this man had a parrot who said, not only does this parrot speak well, but this parrot can rehearse the things that it sees and uh, tell them back to you upon your return. And so he thought, okay, this is, this is good. So he bought the bird, he bought the cage. He got to uh, ask his wife to put it in uh, the house there and take care of it. And then he left. And when he returned, the parrot rehearsed to him all the stuff that she had done. And he was mad, and he didn't like it, so he got onto her pretty harshly. And so she figured that it was the household servants who had betrayed her, but they all swore their fidelity, and oh no, the only perpetrator it could be was the parrot. And so the wife devised a plan, and this plan was to remove her husband's jealousy but it was at the same time to get revenge on the parrot. So later that summer, her husband left on another journey, and she commanded her servants in the night to pound on a dish underneath the cage and to sprinkle water like rain above the cage and to have a mirror uh, with a, a candle and then flash the bird in his eyes. And so they spent all night doing this. And uh, sometime later, the husband returned, and he asked the parrot what had happened in his absence. And the bird answered, A good master, the lightning and the thunder and the rain disturbed me all night. I cannot tell you how much I suffered. It was at that moment that the husband knew that the parrot had lied. 
And so he opens the cage, he seizes the parrot, and he throws the parrot to the ground with such force that the parrot died. And, of course, later he discovered that, yeah, the parrot had actually told the truth, and so he repented that he had killed the bird. What doesn't make sense to you about that story? I'll tell you what it is, because unless you're familiar with A Thousand and One Arabian Nights and Scheherazade and the stories that she told, nothing makes sense. Because the entire story hinges exclusively on one fact that unless you've lived in the Middle East, you wouldn't know. And that is this that they were keenly aware of, which we don't know, because why would the merchant's wife devise such a plan so that the master would know that the bird was lying immediately? And how is it that the master knew the bird lied immediately? One of the more enjoyable things that uh, Barbara and I and the girls, really, it was was so nice uh, on most occasions, in Jordan, was the the roofs there are flat, and we would take our beds up there and we would sleep uh, very comfortably. Didn't we worry about rain? Couldn't some clouds build up and and storm on us? No, not at all. Why? Because there is little to no, mostly not at all, rain from mid. May to mid-October. doesn't rain there. It just doesn't rain. And because there's little or no rain, and everybody knows it, when the master comes home and he's talking about and it, the parrot, and the parrot says that there was a thunderstorm, you see, the master knew immediately that the bird was lying. Now, without that information... That story makes little to no sense to us. The wife's plan doesn't make any sense, and the husband's reaction makes even less sense. Now, why is this applicable to us and our text today? Well, it just so happens that the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, occurs at the end of September in the first week in October. So according to rabbinic tradition, when you build uh, this booth that you live in, it has to be made with things that came from the ground, but that are not any longer attached to the ground. So it'd be like palm leaves that have fallen off, or fronds, or things like that, bamboo sticks, whatever they had. Uh, pine branches, whatever it is, really doesn't matter. The requirement came from the earth, no longer attached to the earth. And it has to have three sides. And it's got to have a little bit of space in there. One of the most interesting things is, is that you have to be able to lay down and look up at night while you're laying in your bed or cot or mat and see the stars. I mean, didn't they worry about the rain? No, they did not worry about the rain. Why? You already know. Because it doesn't rain from mid-May to mid-October there. 
So the roof was directed in such a way to provide, here was the law, here's the way it was. Your roof had to supply more shade than sun, but you had to be able to see the stars at night. Okay, that's that. That was their understanding, uh, and they knew it wasn't going to rain on them. They weren't going to get caught. They weren't going to get wet. And the feast ended just before the rains came. So there was another essential element. Now, this is the element that is vitally important to this story, and that is that this story is really about water. And we'll see that very clearly as we go along. So it's unseen to us what's happening during this story, but it's blindingly clear to those who were there. So let's read our passage. Uh, We're going to be reading in... Uh, John 7, uh, 31 through 39. The Pharisees heard the crowd, or maybe that's 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said, I will go with you. I will be with you a little longer And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion? Perhaps you would use the word uh, diaspora. It's the where the Jews had spread out across the nations from Israel or uh, among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So a lot of the people in the crowd, we talked about this just a little bit last week, were turning to Jesus. Remember, they were confused about if he was to be arrested and put away or killed, why in the world are they letting him teach. Well, they began to turn towards him, but in order to do that, that meant they had to turn away from the traditional Pharisaic teachings. The Pharisees, with their irrational uh, anger and the plan that was proceeding to arrest him, they couldn't tolerate that. And so I don't even imagine uh, what it was inside of them in terms of their anger and their hatred. But what we find is that Israel was, in fact, looking for the Messiah. Uh, And when Messiah came, when we talk about the birth in Bethlehem and all that, the whole nation was primed and ready for Messiah to come. So it wasn't that they weren't uh, looking. It's that they didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. And that was their curiosity. Who is this uh, man? 
Later, John tells us actually that Israel would weep because they failed to recognize him. That's in Revelation 1.7. It's very clear through the book in, uh, in Revelation, this text now, that the time of salvation is now and that there will come a time when it's too late. You can seek, but there'll come a time when the seeking is done. You will either find him or you will not. And Jesus said, you will seek me and you will not find me. I mean, where could he possibly go? I mean, it was easy. He actually told them. He told them. It's right there in the text. I'm going back to the one who sent me. I'm going back to my father. And so because they're earthly minded, because they can't understand uh, these uh, spiritual things, they could only think of earthly places. Okay, so he's going off to the the diaspora. He is uh, going to the Greeks, not just the Greeks in uh, Greece, but uh, that was a term that they would use for all the people who essentially who weren't generally to be a Greek meant to be a non-Jew. And, and with, without realizing it, they were even being uh, prophetic that this is where his disciples would end up uh, going throughout the diaspora first. Paul's operations began in the synagogue but then spread uh, from there. And, uh, but sadly, uh, they didn't have a clue. They just ended up repeating what he had said. What, what could this possibly mean, you know? Verse 37 tells us that this was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Feast of uh, Booths, which it was, and it was a compulsory uh, thing for all uh, males within 15 uh, miles of Jerusalem to actually uh, come there uh, to Jerusalem, these booths sprang up uh, everywhere. You know, whether the roof was flat or a corner of a building, city uh, squares, uh, the gardens, uh, even in the temple courts, these things would pop up. Uh, Another enduring memory that we have uh, of being in uh, Jordan was just a remarkable traveling patterns of the the Bedouin. One would think that they would go around cities. They did not. To include Amman. So, uh, Amman is a large modern city and its population is over uh, 2 million. In fact, it's almost precisely the size of Houston. Once or twice a year, uh, the Bedouin would follow their ancient routes and they would go right through the city, right through the city. You couldn't go anywhere without a bunch of sheep and goats and camels all over the place. Pitch, uh, tents, these uh, Bedouin tents pitched in all, all over. And it was just an amazing thing. You couldn't turn around uh, without running into a, a sheep or their uh, byproducts. So... Just imagine like the Houston Museum uh, District and it's covered with tents and goats and sheep and and shepherds. And trust me, traffic was blocked, not for hours, uh, for days. Now, I don't know if that's what a glimpse of Jerusalem uh, was was like, but that's as close as I can can come to it. This place was packed with uh, people, and, and the entire city was 
uh, covered. You, you couldn't walk out of your booth without stepping on someone else's palm uh, fronds. And, and I've already mentioned that these uh, booths were, they well, I don't know if I mentioned that they were not to be permanent. They were easily t- torn down, and we spoke about their walls and their, and, and their roof. Leviticus 23, 40 through 43 gives us the purpose of this whole thing, that your generations may know that I brought the people of Israel to dwell in booths. I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now we come towards what is it that I need to understand in order to understand this text? Uh, And it's actually not a mystery, but it's not recorded in the biblical text. So every morning during the feast, there was a procession to the Gihon Spring. And that's the place where water was supplied to the Pool of Siloam. So a priest took a golden pitcher that held about two liters of water. And they would go to the, the, the spring, they would dip it in, and they would fill it up, and they would carry it back through, if you're familiar with Jerusalem, the which gate? The water gate. That's why it was called the water gate. They would carry it, and at the same time, as they were processing through the streets, you've got tens of thousands of people Who knows? Maybe a hundred thousands. Who knows? I don't know. But they're singing Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then when they got there, they would pour it out over the altar and they would also sing Psalm 113 and 118. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Oh, work now. Work what? Work your salvation. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Now, on the last day, this they did this every day. On the last day, they did the same thing, except for they added something. They went around the altar seven times in memory of the seven times that they circled at Jericho after order for the walls to fall down. It was against this backdrop. Now, what I can't prove biblically is is exactly when he said it, but my guess is he said it at a key moment when they were likely pouring the water on the altar. And Jesus cried out. So remember that word. Uh, He didn't didn't say, hey, uh, folks. Over here, uh, I have something to say. He probably, top of his lungs, said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, this symbolism ran more profound than simply pointing out water being poured on the altar in celebration of the water that was provided by God through Moses when he struck the rock. Jesus was a prophet, as Scripture foretold. But prophets, let me say a word about prophets, because we're going to, in our 
one of our Sunday school classes come the fall. We're going to be looking at prophets, as many as we can get to. So they were among the most clever uh, people that you can imagine, but they were odd. I mean, seriously odd. Most of us would not take our clothes off and go outside. And yet, Isaiah took his clothes off and wandered around naked and barefoot for three years. Okay? Or look at Jeremiah. The Lord told Jeremiah to hide his underwear in a rock by a river. And then after a long time, now I don't know what long time means in Hebrew, but it must have been a while, to go back and get it. Oh, and you can imagine it was ruined. And, and then you look at Ezekiel. He sees this vision, right? Ezekiel's vision. He sees this vision of God, and you've got the four creatures, and he just absolutely is, he wants to communicate this right. So what do you think God does to him if you remember the story? Boom, <laughs> bap, you can't talk. You, uh, so he draws a picture. He draws a picture of Jerusalem under siege in a clay tablet. And then what does he do? He lays on one side for 390 days. And then he rolls over and he lays on the other side for 390 days. Now, he must have had a bad back when that was done, but... What we have to understand is this, is that there is a harmony between the sometimes seemingly bizarre behavior in the prophecies. It's an incarnational logic. That is, the prophets were not simply speakers of the word. They lived it out through their actions, their clothing, even uh, their bodies, They are witnesses to the transformational power of the word of God. And in fact, God is the master incarnational teacher. He sent us that lesson through Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. But like the prophets, I mean, really, seriously, right? Some of Christ's behavior was just as seemingly bizarre. Uh, He... He comes across a blind guy. So what does he do? He gets some dirt and he spits in it. And he mixes up mud with his spit and dirt and he rubs it on his eyes. That's pretty weird. I mean, the only reason we don't say it's weird or strange or odd is because Jesus did it. If you saw somebody spitting in the dirt and starting to reach towards you, of course, the guy was blind. He didn't have a choice. But you'd run. You'd you'd take off or disruptive. Listen, this is how much we have dehumanized Jesus. We don't realize how disruptive it was when he dined with prostitutes. Again, we go, that's, that's Jesus. That's cool. You try it. You you try it. No, this was completely disruptive and or or even confusing when he promised to rebuild the temple in three days. So we have to see Jesus actually as a prophet in the lines of prophet, in addition to being the son of God, very God, 
the word of God, but nevertheless, when he spoke, he witnessed not only with his words, but also with his actions, timing, his, his very body. And so at the beginning of uh, the children of Israel's 40-year wanderings, God commanded, right, back to the feast now, God commanded that Moses strike a rock. Listen, if you've gone to Sunday school, I didn't grow up in a church, so I didn't know this till I was an adult. You have a different perspective when you're an adult, okay? Why do you have to hit a rock for water to come out? Anybody, you see the matrix? Anyway, you don't have to raise your hands. There's a scene there where all these guys are firing bullets at him. And he's like, mm, you know, no. And it stops. Listen, if you have the power to do that, you don't have to do this. <laughs> you don't. You understand? That's nonsense. It's not like power's coming out of your hand. You know, that's not where it's coming from. Do you understand? Why do you do this? Why would you do this in a movie? Why would you do this in the Bible? It's so that you can see that God is working. Why would Moses have to hold up a staff in order to win? He didn't. You think God was going to lose that battle? No, he was not. The reason they held up the staff was so that we could see. The reason Moses struck the rock was a physical demonstration, not only of the striking of the rock so that water would flow forth, but 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, it's more than just the water coming out of there. It's actually a picture. It's a prophecy of Christ, the rock, being struck so that salvation's life-giving power could flow through him and to us. The second rock which we see in Numbers 20.11, I would take that as a type of the risen Christ seated on the throne of grace. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. It should be an encouragement for us to know that Christ is with us from the beginning to the end. In fact, Hebrews 13.5 says what? This is a verse, if you don't memorize any verses at all, you should, you should memorize this one. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You realize he's the only being who can keep that promise? The only one who can say, as the psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. So verse 38 and 39 tells us that streams of living water will flow from 
within the one who believes in Jesus. You can almost see the picture as he's saying this, the water pouring out onto the altar from the golden pitcher. This is life that's pouring out, living water. And he indicates, he tells us what it is, that it's going to be the Holy Spirit, that that Spirit of God would satisfy our uh, thirst and produce regeneration, guidance, and empowerment. Jesus, he doesn't limit this word thirst. I, I, I just love it. He says, if anyone thirsts, he doesn't say if anyone thirsts for uh, me or if anyone thirsts for something else. He said, just if you're thirsty. And there's an important lesson there in that anything that we're thirsty for that is not God will lead us down a pathway where our thirst will not be quenched. And thus he says, he says, if you're thirsty, drink the water that I give, that will quench that thirst. Listen to me. Come into personal relationship with me. Walk with me, and I will quench that thirst. And rivers, uh, not a river, rivers of living water will flow through you. Come to me and drink. Part of our problem in today's world is that we look at come to me and drink from Christ. And what that means is he's going to satisfy your needs. You know, there is some truth to that in that if you seek righteousness first, then all of these other things that you've been asking for will come uh, to you. But you have to understand that it. In our society, it's more of, I want Jesus to meet my needs. That's the pursuit. And then once my needs are met, then, then I can uh, be a blessing to others. I, I think that's reversed. It's absolutely reversed. When people talk to me and I only hear about them, you know, saying, you know, I found Jesus and, and all that... Uh, Jesus gives to me, satisfies uh, me, I wonder how far they've actually journeyed uh, with our Lord. Uh, because there's that teaching that, let me, put it, let me put it this way, and we're not talking about gifts today, spiritual gifts, but we all, if you know Jesus Christ, you, you have a spiritual gift. He did not give it to you for you. He gave it to you for those around you. In other words, when the rivers of living water are flowing through us, what we're doing is blessing those around us, and in blessing them, we ourselves are blessed. Seek righteousness first. If you want to be blessed, bless others. Now, John wrote this gospel on uh, our side of the day of Pentecost. And, and so that the Spirit of God uh, was not on people. Let me say that differently. The Spirit of God was not in people the way they are, to, the way he is today. He would come on someone. 
So there's a distinction there in that at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit then came and indwelt us. And this is where that power to bless others comes from. Now, the Spirit of God is always present, uh, and he was present before the day of Pentecost. He's present after the day. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm talking about this day of Pentecost established a, a special a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. And so that's how, the, for the first time in the text, we have the Lord's hint on how he's going to do all this. He said, I have to leave. I'm going to him who sent me, and then... When I do that, I will send the Spirit. Water. Revelation 22 tells us, 22.1 tells us that there's a river that flows out of the Jerusalem, down the middle of the great street. And on either side, you have, you have the tree of life and on both sides of the river. And anyone who's thirsty, you just, you just, you just drink water. Ask any Bedouin what the most important thing is, and he will tell you it's water. And today, sadly, people are dying of thirst next to waterfalls. They're next to life-giving streams, and for whatever reason, they don't see it. They don't hear it. While the moral of the merchant and the parrot may be, you know, think twice before acting. I don't know if that's the moral or not. The moral of this story is that eternal life comes through drinking the water that Jesus Christ offer so that the thirst is quenched. And like the woman at the well and the people of the feast, let today be the day that you drink of the water of salvation that Christ offers. Father, we are so deeply grateful for your love and your care for us. Lord, as we are able to, in our mind's eye, see the events of that day so that it's unmistakable as the people cried out salvation and the water was poured that Jesus said, I am that water. If you thirst, drink of me. Lord, there are some in the sound of my voice online in this room who thirst today. And I pray, Father, that you would penetrate the challenges, the difficulties, the hindrances towards your spirit operating in their hearts. That goes for believers too. Cleanse us. Regenerate us. Make us new again.
Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.